Glad you guys came. Good morning. Parshas Yisro is what we're going to discuss, and this is, of course, the climactic, the, the, the culmination, really, of, of leaving Egypt, because, um, as we always say, the, 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 the Pasuk, the, the verse in the Torah that's often quoted, it's, it's, it's just half-quoted, it's, um, let my people go, um, is, is the, the, the popular phrase, but the, the, the whole verse actually says, let my people go so that they can serve me at the mountain which is at Mount Sinai, meaning to say that the whole leaving of Egypt was just in order to get the Torah at Mount Sinai. And um, it's just, I'm sorry? And to serve Hashem. And to serve Hashem. So that is, and, the, and of course, the getting the Torah at Mount Sinai is the, as you point out, is the, is the uh, you know, the, the instruction manual, if you will. Um, and uh, as, as I always like to... Quote Rabbi Matis Yahu Solomon, the uh, Mashkiach at Lakewood, the spiritual leader over there in Lakewood, said that, you know, a, a, a blender, if you buy a blender, it comes with a 30-page set of instructions. Do you think the world doesn't come with a book of instructions? So, um, so anyway, so this is, this is really the culmination, and uh, I don't know if we'll have time to discuss it, but one of the great, great questions is, why isn't this called Parshas Moshe? Why is it called Parshas Yisra? I mean, it seems to be, uh, it's very deep, it's very deep, and, and it's very beautiful, actually, that it is called Parshas Yisra. Yisra is um, Moshe's father-in-law, and he uh, is, you know, he was a Kohen, he was a priest of all the Avodah Zoras, all the different forms of idol worship, and he comes to convert to Judaism. And um, he he's really an extraordinary figure, and the fact that the Torah mentions calls it Parshas Yisro, is I think really a recognition of um, our time in this world uh, that it, it really is about seeking truth and that that is, the, that, is the main, that is the main thing that we have to do. We have to apply ourselves and seek truth. And ideally not just seek it, but to seek it and find it. Because if truth exists, if you seek it, you will find it. So um, he seeks it and finds it, and uh, and that's that that that's interesting. You know, um, let me just go on in, in this vein just a little bit. Um, go ahead, yeah. When you're seeking truth, what are you seeking? Right. So, so, okay. So the question is, when you're seeking truth, what are you seeking? Yeah. So, so there is. There is a, um, it's perplexing, but there is a, a definitiveness to existence. There actually is a definitiveness. There actually is a concrete notion of right and wrong. And this is something that is um, a little bit, uh, you know, we were born into this world. We, 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 we've actually talked about it, this, this notion that the, that the Torah begins with the letter Bez and not with the letter Aleph. Yeah. And, and on one level, what, what, that's, what that's saying is, Aleph we know is one, which, which stands for God, which is definitiveness. So, so the world that we were born into isn't a world where clarity automatically exists. Where we're born into this world, the Torah, which is a blueprint of creation, starts with the letter Bayes. So in other words, we're born with this sort of like two ways. It could go either way. There's right and wrong. There's heaven and hell. There's body and soul. There's materialism and spirituality. You know, there's all, all these conflicting aspects to this world. And so we're born into the bays, into the confusion, and God asks us to find the Aleph. 
Now, the interesting thing about this is that the, just to, to put a fine point on it, you're, is that when God gives us the Torah, the first letter of the Torah is, begins with the letter Aleph. It's Anochi, Anochi, which means, you know, the, it means I. God is talking about himself. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. By the way, that in itself is amazing. Because you would think that God would be, if he wants to introduce himself to millions of people, and by the way, this is just as a PS on top of the PS, um, this, ours is the only religion that's, that talks about God revealing himself to millions of people at once. Every other monotheistic religion has one person who got the word and he says to everyone else, trust me, Right? What other religion has the audacity, the audacity to say that God revealed himself to millions of people? Do you know why no other religion does that? Because how do you, how do you say that and not be a real religion? <laughs> In other words, you become very easy to disprove. <laughs> but if you actually say we revealed ourselves, that God revealed himself to millions of people simultaneously, and the religion still exists, not only does the religion exist, but other religions still base themselves on your religion. Remember, you know, something that we absolutely can't forget. Christianity says, you would think Christianity, well, that's another religion. Surely they don't say that God gave the Torah to the Jewish people in front of millions of people simultaneously and called the Jewish people his Am Segula, his treasured nation. 1,000% Christianity says that happened. Islam, you would say, Islam, they're fighting the Jews all over the place, all over the world, they're calling us... You know, the descendants of monkeys and pigs. You know, surely, surely they don't say that God gave the Torah to the Jewish people in front of millions of people and that God called us his Am Segula, his treasured nation. 1,000% Islam says that happened. Everyone says it happened. They, they did their own religions off of this, but everyone agrees in, in, in the revelation of, of Mount Sinai. And, 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 and yet we're the only religion that says that God revealed himself in front of millions of people simultaneously. So that's, that's an awesome, that's an awesome, awesome thing. But anyway, it begins with the letter Aleph. So in other words, in other words, you, you ask this question, what, is, what does it mean to search for truth? Yeah. And I'm answering that it means that there actually is a definitiveness in this world. There actually is a, something called something right. There is something, we, we, there actually is something right and wrong. And, and the reason why that's so, um, so perplexing to us who have grown up in, in sort of a Western kind of thing is, is because we're really into sort of like, you do your thing, you do your thing. You know, it's like, it's like if I could sum up my um, elementary school sort of like public school experience, it's, it's that the teacher hands out a poem to everyone and then someone says, well, this poem is about a frog. Yeah. You're right. This poem is about Abraham Lincoln. You're right. Everybody's right. And you know something? In, in, in some aspects, that's a great way to run the, the world. That's a great way to run the world. But if you want to say, you know what? Shabbos is on Sunday. No, it's on Thursday. You're right. You're right. No. Shabbos, we know when Shabbos starts and we know when Shabbos ends. We know which arm to put tefillin on. We know to put the tzitzis on the corners of the garments, not on our earlobes, right? I mean, it's, so, so anyway, there is, there is this definitiveness. Now, what happens? Why is definitiveness so challenging? 
Because most of the people of the world will then say the following. Well, since this is right, and since I am right, and since you don't accept what I'm saying, now I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and so, so, so this is, this, this is, this is where it gets really problematic. You know? This is where it gets very problematic. Um, but, but anyway, the point is, is that, is that we go from the base of Breshi, the base of creation, the base of the confusion of the world, and from there, we reach out to the Aleph of Anochi, the Aleph of, this is the first letter of the, of the, of the Torah, as it was given by God. Now, let's go a little bit deeper. Remember, Reb Shlomo says in the name of the Kabbalists, he says, the deepest Kabbalists say that Hashem, Hashem, you know, actually everyone says it's our tradition, but let me just make this point first, that, that Hashem spoke the first two of the Ten Commandments. The first two. So in other words, I'm the God who took you out of Egypt. And let me just finish a point I started earlier. If it, if it were me, I would have said, I'm introducing myself to millions of people. I would say, I am the God who created the entire universe. Right? Isn't it interesting that God says, I am the God who took you out of Egypt? Seemingly a much smaller accomplishment than creating something out of nothing, a whole world out of nothing. Right? And the answer is, is that, is that God was making an even more important point. Right? Perhaps the, perhaps the point of our life. In fact, you would have to say, if God is only going to say two things, and this is the first of the two things, God is going to put the more important thing first, right? Then this sort of has to be the most important thing in the entire world, doesn't it? And if you think about it, he's going to say one thing. This pretty much has to be the most important thing that we have to know. And what is that thing that he took us out of Egypt? Well, on one level, yes. But what's the, what's the deeper aspect of that? That God is with us in our lives. That God is with us in the troubles of our lives. That is, that is it. That's what, God is t- that's what God tells us. He tells us two things. And that's the first of the two things that he tells us directly. I am with you in the troubles of your life. I mean, that's an awesome, that's, an, that's awesome, that's awesome, that's awesome, because he didn't say, you know something, really, when you wash your hands, it really should be from the wrist on down, he didn't give us, like, like people think, okay, the God of the Jews is really wonky, you know what I mean, chas shalom, you know what I mean, he's so into details, and it's like so, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> you know what I mean, it's like, it's like, it, it's so not that. It's so not that. God essentially is giving this massive hug for all of eternity. What, what's the nature of this hug of Har Sinai? Right? Because it says that every soul of every Jew that was ever going to live, it wasn't just the people who were there, because he's, God says in another verse later on, He says, I'm giving you this Torah for all of you who are there and not there, which the, we understand to mean that all of the neshamas of the people who were not there were also there meaning those people who were going to live at future ages were also there. Everyone who was ever going to convert to Judaism was there. All their souls were at Mount Sinai. And God is giving this massive collective hug to everyone who's alive, who's ever going to be Jewish, and says, I'm with you in all your troubles. Always. I'm with you in all your troubles. So, so, so Reb Shlomo says in the name of the Kabbalists that what did Hashem say? It's not just that he just said the first two commandments. 
Some say he just said the word Anochi. That's it, I. And by the way, he said in the name of the Ishvitzer Rebbe, if you rearrange the letters, could you, could you, yeah, thanks. If you rearrange the letters of the word Anochi, it's Ani and, and K. K, uh, the letter Kaf in, 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 in Hebrew is a prefix. Thank you. Um, and it means like. So, so the Ishvitzer says that if you rearrange Anochi, it's like like me, like I, like me. So in other words, in other words, here was the greatest revelation of godliness in the history of all the world, right? Our souls flew out of our bodies when God spoke, and then he had to put them back in our bodies, and then, and then God spoke again, and our souls flew out of our bodies again, and he had to resurrect us en masse a second time, and then we said, Okay, look, we're good. <laughs> you give the rest to Moshe. We're, we, we agree. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, we saw God's two pieces of ID. We saw the two photo IDs. We're like, okay, you're God. There's no questions. And then God comes back and he says, you think this is me? This is just cut I need. This is just like me. This is the smallest taste of me. Do you know how infinite I am? This is the smallest taste of me. So, so now, but let's get deeper still. So, 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 Reb Shlomo says in the name of the Kabbalists that what Hashem said, he didn't even just say Ani, uh, Anochi. He pronounced the letter Aleph. Now, those of you who know a little bit about Hebrew know that Aleph is a silent letter. So how do you pronounce a silent letter? Right? So that's something you can meditate on for the rest of your life. You know? God pronounced the letter Aleph. And that was the revelation of the Torah in this world. You know? I guess if I heard the letter Aleph pronounced, my soul would fly out of my body also, you know? So, I mean, like, so that's obviously a very deep, that's a very deep idea. And I once came up with a, 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 an explanation that I was really happy with. But that was about 20 years ago, and I don't remember it. <laughs> so, but anyway. Um, so the idea then is that you start with the, you start with the, the bays of Breshis. And from that, from that confusion, you reach out to the Aleph of Anochi, which is this which you can say is the Aleph of Emes as well on some level. You know, the, the, the you know, truth. And you, and you find it. So, now let's get back to Parshish Yisro, because I saw something that really moved me, and maybe, uh, maybe you guys will be interested as well. So, if you, if you look at the beginning of the Parsha, it says that, it says, Yisro, the minister of Midian, the father-in-law of Moshe, heard all that God did to Moshe and to Israel his people, that Hashem took Israel out of Egypt. So it says he, he heard. He heard all that God did. So what did he hear exactly? So the Gemara says, and Rashi brings it down, what Yisro heard was about the splitting of the Red Sea, okay, and, and the, the dividing of the Red Sea, right, and the war with Amalek. Now, in other words, these are two great victories. A huge, huge miracle, maybe the greatest public miracle, the splitting of the Red Sea, and then, um, 
And then Amalek attacks us, and we overpower Amalek. And uh, and Yisro comes to uh, to be with Moshe, to be with the Jewish people. Okay. Now, let's just go a few sukkim later. See an amazing Rashi. This is now Pasuk 18, or rather, verse chapter 18, verse 8. Just uh, a few lines further. And... Uh, uh, it says here that, that, that Moshe is speaking to, um, to Yisro to try to bring him to Judaism. Okay? So, so now listen to this. Moshe told his father-in-law everything that Hashem had done to Paro and Egypt for Israel's sake. All the trouble that had, been fo- that had befallen them on the way and that Hashem had rescued them. Okay? So, so now let's look at Let's look at the Rashi. What's all the trouble that had happened them on the way? You ready for this Rashi? Rashi says all the trouble, the troubles of the sea and Amalek. Now wait a second. Didn't we just say, didn't we just say that Yisro heard about this great, these great salvations, these great events, the, the splitting of the sea and the victory against Amalek? And he wanted to come and join the Jewish people. And now Moshe is telling them, telling Yisrael about all the troubles that they had gone through and how God had saved them. What are all the troubles? The splitting of the sea and the war of Amalek. Okay, now, that's not exactly right. Let me just tell you it in Hebrew. It says, all the trouble, um, shel hayam v'shel Amalek. V'shel hayam. So, of the sea. All the trouble of the sea, and there's a footnote here in the uh, art scroll uh, Rashi Chumash here, explaining what does of the sea mean, how the Israelites were hemmed in by the sea, and they're pursuing Egyptians. So in other words, what, 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 uh, and, 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 and uh, of course, how Hashem rescued them. Okay, so, so now this is, this is a little more detailed. He didn't just tell, uh, Yisro, about just the splitting of the sea and the great salvation, he told him about that period before the sea split. Uh, okay, so now we're getting deeper. So now let's, let's put our minds into this for a moment. The Midrashim teach us that, that this period, right before the sea split, was very stressful, <laughs> extremely stressful. You had a sea here, and you're not going to cross the sea on your own. Okay, you've got millions of people here, and you're not going to just cross the sea on your own. You're going to drown if you try to do that. Okay, so that's not an option. On the other side are 600 Egyptian chariots charging at you. Now, by the way, I just want to talk about these chariots for a moment because there is a detail about them that I just want to link to contemporary society for a moment. The, these chariots, you know, which is basically... You know, it's uh, what they're riding on. It's made out of metal, whatever it is, and, and they're charging on. This, is, this was the height, pretty much, of military technology in, in its day. So this would be the equivalent of, you know, the type of a, like a, you know, nuclear weapon or something like this. You know, I mean, in terms of the, if you want to put yourself in the psychology of the people who are seeing these chariots come at them, this is, this is very sophisticated military hardware coming at them, okay? It's not just a bunch of horses, 
Okay, so not only that, so you would think that that would be enough, but there's a very peculiar detail, which is that it says that the Egyptians decorated their chariots with jewels and gold and silver. And that, by the way, when the um, when they got all washed up in the Sea of Reeds, that the Jews gathered up this the, these jewels and this gold and this silver, and it amounted to more value than all of the gold and silver that they brought out by going and visiting their neighbors and asking them for their gold and silver. So in other words, the booty, the amount of wealth, I guess in terms of the size of the jewels, I mean, however you're to understand why it was more valuable, but whatever the size of the jewels were and everything like that, it was even more than all the gold and silver that they had taken out of Egypt. And this was on the chariots. Now, why did the Egyptians do that? And I would just like to offer a suggestion. Because they wanted to just say, they didn't want to just say, we're going to, we're, we're stronger than you. But they wanted to display their wealth. They wanted to say, we're better than you too. You think you can come up against us? Look at these jewels. Look at this gold. Look at this silver. You're nothing compared to us. You're nothing. We'll kill you and eat you for breakfast. Look at us. We're so rich. And look at contemporary society. Look how it tries to intimidate us and belittle us by flashing its wealth. Is it any different than the chariots of the Egyptians decorated with gold and jewels in order to conquer us? It's the same thing. So it's not coming at us, you know, horse-drawn. So it's coming at us with four-wheel drive instead. Or it's coming at us in, in terms of billboards or fur coats or whatever it is. It's the same Egyptians coming at us to try to wipe us out. Why else would they decorate their chariots at a time of warfare with gold and jewels and silver. Why else? It was psychological warfare. And we can't allow ourselves to fall prey to that. You know, it says in Perke Avos, you're, you sit at the table of kings. Your reward is better than their reward. You're sitting at the table of kings. This is this is our life. So, so, so again, we have to understand what Moshe was saying to Yisro. Yisro, remember, says comes because he hears about these great salvations, the splitting of the sea and the victory against Amalek, and then Moshe is relating to him seemingly the same events, and he's talking to him about all the troubles. The trouble at the sea and the trouble with Amalek. Two very different takes on the same two events. So now, what was the trouble at the sea? So you have the sea on one border. They can't get past the sea, right? No one knows it's going to split, right? We know the ending of the story. They didn't know the ending of the story. The sea is, is, is a dead end. The, the, the Egyptians are coming with the height of military technology and psychological warfare coming right at us. And how about left and right? The Medrash says that wild animals were charging at us from each of those two directions. All right? 
so, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? It's a very, it's a very stressful situation. And of course we know that the prince of the tribe of Yehuda, right, Miriam's husband, by the way, Miriam's husband jumps into the water and, you know, it's not just he jumps into the water, he gets up to the point of his nose right when he's about to drown. Okay, so he's like, and the sea splits and of course there's an amazing salvation. Okay. So here's the point that I want to make. You know, when you when you hear about someone's triumph, right? Like, like you know, to, to give an example, Rav Noach Weinberg, Zecher Tzadav Levrucha, Allah Shalom, was just nifter last week. He was the founder and dean of Aisha uh, uh, Torah uh, International. And, um, you know, just, uh, you know, someone was saying this, I, I don't remember who, um, but, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's one small thing, but maybe it's not such a small thing. You know, there's, if you go to the Kotel, right, you can imagine that the Kotel is the most, is the biggest tourist attraction. I mean, it's the site of the base of Migdash, right? So it's obviously the holiest place in the world, but let's just approach it from another angle, from the Israeli government standpoint, because that's what I want to talk about right now. From the Israeli government standpoint, that's... Um, that's pure gold, right? That's, that's, that's where all the people are coming and one of the main reasons why people are coming to Israel. So, so how they, how they um, regulate that site is, is, is of huge importance, okay? So the whole area, there are buildings facing the Kotel. Now, you, like right facing the Kotel. So that is the most valuable real estate, you could argue, especially from a spiritual standpoint, the most valuable real, real estate in the world, right? So, so the government gave those buildings to Asia Torah. Now, who told the government to do that? God, I guess, right? I mean, I don't know that he spoke it out, right? But, but you have to say that that was from heaven. So, in other words, if you're looking for, if you're looking for some sort of like divine approval of the way that Rav Noach ran his organization and that he was on the right track. The fact that they were given this block of land facing the base of Migdash is pretty compelling. It's pretty compelling. Forget about all their other successes. Well, don't forget about their other successes. But I'm just saying that, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. Now, Rav Noach, Eshator was something like his fourth or fifth yeshiva that he had founded. The others had found. So let's just talk about that for a moment. And then he makes a Torah, and we know how huge a success it is. Let's just talk about that for a moment. And um, by the way, I, I haven't changed the subject. I'm still talking about Yisro, and I'm still talking about all of us. Just, just so you know. Um, uh, so, so he makes a yeshiva, and he fails. Now, how do you make a yeshiva? You don't just make a yeshiva. You have to get a building. You have to, um, you have to uh, advertise it and get students. You have to hire teachers. You got to feed them something. You got to pay rent. This is this costs money. You're opening up a school. This costs money. 
So, and time and everything like this, and you've got to convince people to, to do it and all the rest. So he did that and it went out of business. For whatever reason, he had to close it. He didn't have enough students or he didn't have enough money or whatever it was. He had to close the yeshiva. So then what happens? So you go, well, I tried. God, I tried. You saw I tried, right? You saw I tried. Here's the, the letterhead to prove that I tried. You know I tried. So, so you can give up at that point, right? So he didn't give up. So he did it again. So what does that mean? Now you have got to go to rich people or other rich people or maybe to the same rich people who you already asked and you say, no, this time it's going to work. I know what I did wrong last time. This time it's going to work, I promise you. And now you have to get another location and you've got to rent it and you've got to hire more teachers and you've got to advertise it some more and you've got to get the students and it didn't work again. And he did it again and now he's got to, now he's got to go and he's got to try again. He's got to borrow the money again or raise the money again or whatever it is. And he's got to say, I know, I know I said last time that I learned the lessons and that it was going to work. I know I said it last time. But no, this time I really, I, I really know, and it doesn't work again. And he didn't stop. He didn't stop. And then he forms a Shatora, and, and a Shatora is has changed people's lives. In fact, if you meet someone or whatever it is, or if you yourself haven't checked it out, H.com, it's, it's really, I guess, the, maybe the best Jewish website. I'm sure a lot of people will tell you it's by far the greatest Jewish website, but there are a lot of good Jewish websites, thank God. I mean, it's amazing that we can even say that there's even a debate because Aisha Torah, H-A-I-S-H dot com, is like, you know, how did I describe it before? It's like 10 universities and a Walmart, right? It's like, you, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of articles on there. I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible what's on that site. But here's the point that I'm trying to make, okay? Besides Rav Noach's greatness and his inability to, to give up, which is phenomenal, right? Did you hear when I first brought it up how long it took me to say? I said he I said that he formed that he that he tried four times or five times, whatever it is, and he failed. And then that last time he made Asha Torah and it was a huge success. Why? Huh? How long did that take me to say? Five seconds? Five seconds? <laughs> Do you know how many do you know how many years? Do you know how many tears? Do you know how much heartbreak? When in, it took me five seconds to say? Five seconds? Yeah, you know, he had four or five yeshivas, whatever it is, they failed, and, and then he made Asha Torah. It was a huge success. Why? What? What got compressed there? <laughs> I mean, right? I mean... It's like a joke. Look how much... I mean, we just spanned the universe. <laughs> and we just... Ah. So, so what's the point? What's the point? Yisro heard. Yisro heard about the great victories. He heard it like I told it to you the first time. He heard, yeah, the sea split. They beat Amalek. He heard, he heard the telling at the end. Right? 
And what does Moshe tell him? Moshe tells him the same stories, but he doesn't tell it to him that way. He says, you know what we went through at the sea? (laughs) Do you know what we went through? The sea wasn't splitting. The Egyptians were coming at us with their chariots. There were wild animals coming from us at each side. He told him what it was to go through the crisis itself. And then Amalek attacks us. What did we do? We're just, we're walking into the desert. It's public domain. Doesn't belong to Amalek. Just minding our own business. And then all of a sudden this army comes out of nowhere and starts trying to kill us. Yeah, we happened to beat them. But you know, you know what it was to just like I'm walking home from a Shabbos meal and a guy jumps out of a car and hits me over the head with a bottle? That didn't happen, thank God. But, but that happens to people sometimes, you know? We shouldn't know from it. But, but, you know, it's like we're just, and then they attack us? But what's the end of the thought, though? What's the end of the thought? The end of the thought is, and God rescued us. Moshe tells him, and God rescued us. Now, what we have to appreciate is that, you know, I heard Rabbi Wine put it like this. If you ever look at like a business chart, a stock chart or whatever it is, you know, it's never a straight line. It's never like a straight line. It goes down, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up. Hopefully, you know, when you stand a few inches back from it, Hopefully, there's an upward incline. You know, not these days. But But hopefully, there's an upward incline over the course of the ups and downs. But an up can only be an up if it's coming off a down. A salvation, a miracle, can only be a salvation or a miracle if you were in trouble to begin with. And it's not like God is like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I remember you. I wasn't watching you. Oh yeah, now I'm going to pull you up. When we were down, he was also watching us. You know, I saw in the name of the Chassam Sofer that in a time, in a time of exile, in the time of Gallus, where God is hidden, so to speak, it's not that he doesn't act. It's not, it's not that he's rather, let me rephrase that. It's not, says the Chassam Sofer, that he's not watching. He is watching. He's just waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting for the time when he's going to act. So, if there's a salvation that you're in need of, you have to understand, God is there, and God is watching, but for whatever reason, he's waiting. He's waiting for the moment to act. He's waiting for the moment to act. You know, I'll tell you something. I was looking over in my own personal life just the other day, not on purpose, just kind of the thought kind of just flew into my head. There was one kind of, I would call it a a miracle. I would say in terms of my business life, it was probably the biggest miracle that I experienced. An opportunity that sort of (coughs) kind of came and, and, uh, you know, was very unusual the way it happened. And I... 
I thought, you know, wow, you know, that was like really a miracle. I must have been doing something right or something to have for that to have happened, you know. And then, then I was thinking about it, like I said, just yesterday, and I realized that the the period right before that happened, I was in a really lousy situation. <laughs> you know, it's not like I was like, oh yes, and you know, when I was learning for sixteen hours a day and. I kept my feet in a bucket of ice water so I wouldn't fall asleep. And it was really like everything was going so great. And then, wow, the skies opened and this great thing happened. I was in a really crummy situation before it happened. And yet this miracle, I'll call it a miracle, this miracle that happened suggests that, you know, God was so present. Well, what I'm trying to say is, is that it seems like a real contradiction. Like, how are things going so in such a crummy way and then such a great way? That must mean God wasn't there, and then all of a sudden he was there. But that is absolutely not Torah. That's not Judaism. That's not Torah. That's not reality. God was there when the situation was lousy, but he was waiting. He was waiting for whatever reason. He was waiting for the right moment. And when the right moment came, bang, it happened. And for the right moment to come, it doesn't mean that everything necessarily has to be going great moments before. It cannot be going great moments before, and yet we can be in a situation where it's going to be great moments later. And there is no contradiction. And Moshe Rabbeinu was saying that to Yisro. We were hemmed in at the sea. It was really terrible at the sea. And then the sea split. But don't just focus on the salvation, Yisro. And all of us, where we find out, yeah, you know, oh, isn't it amazing? The guy hasn't got a leg. He's got a prosthetic leg and he runs the 100 meter dash and... First he had to lose his leg, then he had to be told that he's never going to walk again, then he's got to say that, no, I will walk again, in fact, I'll run again, I'll run faster than anyone, then he's got to get the leg, then he's got to figure out how to use the leg, then he's got to run really slowly and fall down and hurt himself and then get up again, and then he's got to enter the race, and who knows how many races he lost before he won the big race. But when you see it on AOL, it's like, Guy with prosthetic leg wins race. And you go, wow, that was great. It was great the way he did that. (laughs) You know? (laughs) So, you know, I'll tell you you a story with two two twists, okay? You know, life has metaphor. I'm always attuned to the the, the what what what's maybe trying to be taught, you know, and you know whatever. Sometimes you you get it, sometimes you don't, but you know you try. So I was driving back from a from a Irvine actually, so it's about an hour or so away, and I don't really haven't really traveled it, especially during the week or whatever. And anyway, I wasn't exactly sure how to get home, but I'm I'm driving home, and I think that I'm going. You know that, that, that maddening experience where you're on a new road and you're wondering, is this the right road? Is this not the right road? And you're in this debate and you're looking for signs to reaffirm 
that you're going in the right direction. You know, it's very enervating, that experience. So I'm sure you all know it. So anyway, I'm driving on this road and I'm wondering, is this the right road? And then, you know, you can hear the metaphoric quality to it already. You know, I said, I'm driving on this road. Is this the right road? And then I said to myself, you know what? It, I know it's the right road. Even though I didn't see any signs affirming it, I know it's the right road because I haven't changed roads. This was the road that I was on before, and I saw that it was the right road before, and I haven't changed roads, so it must be the right road. So I thought to myself, you know something? If you're, go- if you're living your life according to Torah and mitzvahs, that's the right road. That's the right road. And there will be confusion. There will be confusion. And you'll wonder, am I on the right road? Because this is life. But if you've dedicated yourself to Torah and mitzvahs, you're on the right road. Now, that's the end of lesson number one. Lesson number two is, I realized I wasn't on the right road. (laughs) But it was very easy. Now we've left... We've left the realm of teaching number one, which is complete in itself. Torah and mitzvahs is the right road, 100%. Torah and mitzvahs is the right road. But sometimes, even when you're on the right road, you have to make an adjustment. You have to realize, you know something, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping Torah and mitzvahs, but the truth is I'm also fighting with this guy and I'm fighting with this guy. And I'm keeping Torah and mitzvahs, but the truth is I'm not keeping this mitzvah and I'm not keeping that mitzvah. So, you know, the truth is is that we have to be attuned to the specifics, even when we're on the right road. And then I'll tell you something, the adjustment that I had to make, I didn't have to get off the highway and switch around and find and take out my Thomas's Guide and maps and all the rest. I just made a slight adjustment and I was right back, right, right back in the right direction. Is the slightest adjustment, you know? So you have to be on the right road and then just have confidence that that's the right thing, right? And then, but within that, you can make adjustments. But they won't be big adjustments. That's the good news. Well, they might be challenging, but, but they're, relatively speaking, more minor adjustments. So, so, um, so let me just... Uh, Wrap it up. Let me just wrap it up and just try to get a little more uh, expansive uh, at this moment. So, so where are we right now, historically, in our lives? Many of us, most of us, maybe all of us. We're at that place before the sea is split. We're at that place before the sea is split. The Egyptians are coming this way. The wild animals are coming both ways. The sea is right there. But we know the end of the story. Mashiach comes. God is there. God isn't going anywhere. We're not going anywhere, by the way. Our souls last forever. We're also forever. But God is more forever. So... So the sea is going to split and there will be a big salvation. But but maybe it hasn't split yet. Maybe it hasn't split yet. 
So, you know, you got to play to win, right? Like these are the uh, big uh, mottos of the uh, lottery. You got to be in it to win it, <laughs> right? So, so you stay in it. You stay in it. And um, I'll tell you, uh, I was thinking, just, we'll just end on this thought, just to wrap it up. Um, I, uh, I was remembering uh, the, the first time I ever went to the mikveh, uh, Reb Shlomo took me, and, uh, and um, I was very early for shul. They, you know, I was there, at, like strictly speaking, Mincha, Erev Shabbos time, maybe I was even a little earlier. I was the only one in the shul on 79th Street. It was empty except for me. The lights were out even, and I was just kind of sitting there. Didn't realize that they started a little bit later. And uh, Reb Shlomo was walked down the stairs, and he just kind of l- poked his head into the uh, into the shul. It's kind of you know like a shtibul. It's and he sees the place is empty except for me. I'm just sitting there by myself, and he was sort of surprised to see me. And he said, he 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 said that he said I'm going to the mikveh. He said, Are you into the mikveh or not so much? Right. <laughs> And so I told him I always wanted to go to the mikvah, but I, I never knew how or like what the deal was. You know, I'll just tell you: for women, it's it's something else, but for men, it's very easy. There's not there's nothing you do. You just go to the mikvah. You, you just show up at the mikvah, take a shower that's there, and go into the mikvah. It's 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 a, there's no blessing. There's no Hebrew. There's no, nothing. You just go. So it's pretty pretty easy. Um, so anyway, uh, we were on our way to the mikvah. And I remember the conversation that we had on the way to the mikvah. And this is what I want to tell you. Which is that I said to Reb Shlomo, I said, you know, um, God functions outside of time. In other words, he's with us, right? That's the Anochi, that's the first of the of the um, Aseris Adibros, right? Translated as the Ten Commandments. I'm with you. I'm the one who took you out of Egypt. I'm with you with all of your, with all of your suffering. But, um, but God is saying that uh, even though He's with us, we know on a deeper level He's outside of time. He's outside outside of time. He's not bound by time. So, in other words, God sees the the past, the present, and the future. God is outside of time. Now, God promised to bring Mashiach. Which means, since God is outside of time and he sees the future from God's point of view, he has already brought Mashiach. He's already brought Mashiach. Because God exists outside of time. We're inside of time. We don't see it. But for God, it's already happened. Do you you understand? Because God is outside of time. So Mashiach, from God's point of view, has already come. Okay? Okay? So I said that to Reb Shlomo. I wanted to get his reaction, right? And he said, said something very deep and beautiful. He said, yes. He agreed. He said, yes. He said, yes, right now we're just making vessels. We're making vessels to hold him. So, so that's what we're doing. The, the future is assured. The future is assured. There is a happy ending. All of us go to heaven, so we've got a happy ending on our personal lives. And Mashiach comes, the world gets fixed. So there's a happy ending on a macro level as well. Everyone gets a happy ending. 
So, but what we're doing right now is we're making vessels to hold this exalted light. And the better we are at that, the more we can do that. And we do that with the mitzvahs, with kindness to each other. The more we can make vessels to hold that light, the more that which is, cosmically speaking, already there, will have a place to dwell. And, and so Hashem should bless us that we should just be successful in holding that exalted life so that we can see all of the great salvations. And you know, having, having been through the trouble, the victory, the salvation is that much sweeter at the end. When you've gone through the difficult time and you get to taste the good time, it's that much sweeter. And those days are ahead for all of us. Have a great week. Thank <laughs> you.